This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. It's Zuma Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zuma Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe was a radio series featuring Raymond Chandler's private eye, Philip Marlowe, Robert C. Reiner, and John D. Swartz, in their book The A to Z of Old Time Radio, noted that the program differed from most others of its genre. It was a more hard-boiled program than many of the other private detective stories of the time, containing few quips or quaint characters. The program first aired the 17th of June of 1947 on NBC Radio under the title The New Adventures of Philip Marlowe with Van Heflin playing Marlowe. The show was a summer replacement for Bob Hope. In 1948, the series moved to CBS where it was called The Adventures of Philip Marlowe with Gerald Moore playing Marlowe. By 1949, it had the largest audience in radio. Here's the episode entitled The Big Book. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. Those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. There's no other end. But they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's story, The Big Book. Come on, it winds it up. Boys, get him in the wagon without any trouble, thanks to you. Well, you don't have your car here, do you, Phil? No, Lieutenant, and I haven't had lunch either. Hmm? Maybe the police department feels obligated on both counts, huh? Maybe. <laughs> get in, Phil. Mooney, some good restaurant before headquarters, huh? Check, Lieutenant. How are you, Mr. Marlowe? Hungry, Mooney. <laughs> okay, Mr. Marlowe. I know a good spaghetti place will we... Unit 18A, a dead body at number 11 West Main Street, reported a suicide investigate. You'll call, Matthew? Unit 18A, no, that's a, specific a unit. dead oh. body at number 11 West Main Street. Unit 11 West Main. It's only around the corner, isn't it, Mooney? That's right, Lieutenant. Might save us a trip back here later, huh? Yeah. Marlowe, lunch will be a little late. Let's go, Mooney. 
number 11 West Main Street, a Skid Row rooming house. A middle-aged woman who had been the ground floor rear apartment was now dead of a bullet that had passed directly through her heart. A shabby, cramped room was packed tight with a dozen different tales, smells, and the naked light bulb dangled from a cracked plaster ceiling. The dead woman lay in the middle of the floor. She looked about 45, had gray-black hair, and wore a cheap cotton dress under a faded, moth-eaten man sweater. Up to there, she belonged to the backdrop. But beyond that, someplace in the deeply etched beauty of her face, the studied neatness of her hairdo, there was something vague and disturbing that made the whole picture slightly lopsided, like a, like a cheerful tie on an undertaker. Ten minutes later, when I was out in the hall listening to Mooney run down the routine facts for Lieutenant Matthews, that something was still with me, bothering me, the way a, a half-remembered dream does when you're shaving the next morning. Lived here five years now. Came from the east, and according to the landlord, has no close friends or relatives in the city. Also, the bullet was fired at point-blank range. Uh-huh. Anything on the gun that was next to her? Uh, not yet, Lieutenant. It was her fingerprints only. Looks like it's strictly pawn shop stuff. Serial numbers filed off, cheap make, etc. Yeah, yeah. Deputy coroner says she died about 10 or 10.30 this morning. Yeah. Along about that same time, the landlord says he saw a flashy black car parked in the alley outside where people never park. Spiffy mm. convertible. Was gone after he heard the shot, he thinks. Did you get the license number, Mooney? Uh, no, Mr. Marlowe, you got nothing. Um, All we have on it so far is a fresh tire tread in the mud. It's a 750-15, pretty good shape. Uh-huh, and that is it, huh? Just about. Landlord thinks that the deceased was an actress way back from little remarks she made. That's mm. about all. I still got one neighbor to check, though. Okay, Mooney, let me know. Right. Now, uh, Marlowe looks like I have to stand you up on that lunch date. Sorry. I, uh, I'm not so hungry anymore. I'll see you around, Matthews. On the way out, I told myself three things. One, aside from the fact that we belonged to the same fraternity laughingly called mankind, Jane Temple was nothing to me. Two, a lot of beautiful girls turn out to be beautiful women, and three, if the black convertible meant anything at all, the police would figure it out by themselves. They came well equipped for the job. Well, by the time I was out on the street in the sharp autumn air, it chopped away the stale smells of the dead woman's apartment. I was beginning to forget the name Jane Temple entirely. I might have kept going that way if he hadn't appeared just then. Hey, hey, huh? mister, mister, over here, quick. Mister, you, you're not a policeman. You, you're a reporter for the newspaper, no? What makes you say that? Well, I see you go in there with the police, the plainclothes detective man, and nobody salute you. The ones in uniform, I mean. So maybe you report, eh? Maybe why? Well, I can tell you here. Come to my shop in 15 minutes. I don't want people to see us together now. Come to the shoemaker place across the street and down the stairs. Andrew Nodella. Yeah, but why, Mr. Nodella? What do you want a reporter for? What's it about? Uh, the fine, fine lady who used to die, Mrs. Jane Temple. Goodbye, mister. <laughs> Look, my friend, it cost me one buck of fifty for the letter alone. How can I give it to you for now? Look, you have a Okay, okay, okay. Andrew Nodella changes his mind. He won't argue for, for with a customer. Here. One dollar twenty-five just like you want him a cash. Yeah, it's more like it. I wasn't born just the other day. I can tell value. Sure, sure, sure. My mistake, Commissioner. Excuse me, please. Okay. Huh? Gee. 
kill a drone that chase yeah. I only gave in to get rid of him, you see. Now I'll put the out to launch a sign on and lock up the door so we won't be disturbed. The police and nobody. Okay. Now, uh, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, we go in the back room this way. Please. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Before we go any place, Nodella, one question. Why are you so worried about the police? Because down in this neighborhood, Mr. Marlowe, every time I do a good thing and I call the police when it's right, I get in some kind of trouble. These people, my customers, they don't, they don't like uh, you should be a... Uh, stool pigeon? Ah, a stool pigeon. Mm-hmm. All right, Mr. Nodella, now about Jane Temple. Uh, uh, wonderful woman, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, come in the back room, huh? All right. Ah, uh, Mr. Marlowe, fine. A call to the lady. I know. I was... Uh, I was not always a shoemaker. You know, in the old country, I was a student. And before that, I was an artist. I wouldn't doubt it. You and Jane Temple were really good friends, is that it? Ah, she, she, good friends. That's why I'm in a position to say, I don't think she killed herself. She was not the kind of a lady, Mr. Marlowe. She was not moody. She liked to be alone with her memories, but that's all. Look, come here at the table, Mr. Marlowe. Look at this. That was hers. Scrapbook, huh? Yeah. She left it with me. The letter on the front was worn. I was repairing it for her. <laughs> she trusted only me with it. But open it up, Mr. Muller. I say no more. You just look for yourself. It was a usual setup. Between the big covers of a big book, a little life story in tattered yellow clippings and faded photographs... Twenty-five years ago, Jane Temple had been exquisite. A fragile, haunting kind of beauty that never goes out of style. A kind of... of universal beauty that makes style. The book itself came in two parts. The first told in rave reviews and letters from select admirers was the rocket-fast rise of Jane Temple, who, as one critic put it, was inspirational beauty in the inspired actress. Both. Yet on that level, the first part ended abruptly in 1928, with no explanation. The second part was another success story, but it ran right up to the present. The career of one Jerome Larkey, from obscure London stagehand to top Hollywood theatrical agent. <laughs> A healthy, giant step. But no place did I see anything to connect the two. Odella must have read my mind. You wonder, eh, Mr. Marlowe, what one got to do with the other, eh? Yeah. Do you know? No. Maybe this can help you find out. It's, it's another clipping that was not pasted in the book. Where'd it come from? Inside the back cover. I was only to repair the front, Mr. Marlowe. But as a surprise for Miss Temple, I, I went ahead to do it all, see. I found this clipping hidden in the lining of the back of cover. It tells of a man named John Gordon being sent to jail in London, England in 1928 for embezzlement of a theater's money. There's a picture of him, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, so I... Hey, this John Gordon Jerome Malarkey, see? The big agent man, Mr. Marlowe. There's still one more thing. Last night... I surprised somebody, a thief, in this shop. And when I scared him away, he was looking at this book, but nothing else was a touch. You didn't tell anybody about it? No, 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 no. I was going to tell Mr. Temple, but... Well, Mr. Marlowe, everything I say to you, everything I show you here... Am I crazy or does it mean only one thing? 
Jerome Malachi killed the wonderful Mr. Temple to keep a secret. Well, it's possible. But also, Nodella, Miss Temple may not be so wonderful at that. You know, people don't kill to keep secrets. They kill to keep secrets from getting out. That's called blackmail. No, Mr. Marlowe, not to Mr. Temple. I don't believe that. And I don't believe that you do either. I don't want to. Well, I'll see what I can find out. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you, you tell me before you tell your paper. Mr. Nodella, I don't have a paper. Just curiosity. I'm a private detective, not a reporter. And uh, the initial mistake was yours, not mine. So don't get mad about it. What? A private detective? Mr. Marlowe, who are you working for? Right now, Mr. Nodella? I'd say the late Jane Temple. Goodbye. The Jerome Lockie agency on the Sunset Strip was big, brassy, and busy and sported a blonde receptionist to match. After I gave her my card and we exchanged frosty smiles, she waved me into a seat. I tried it for 15 minutes and then I began to get itchy. But compared to the dapper gray of the temple's gentleman sitting next to me, that was a mild reaction. He was one of those heavy-handed character actors you remember by face, never by name. Jerome Lockie's office? No, he's not in there. <laughs> Mr. Jerome Larkey certainly has an exaggerated impression of his own importance. Been here a while, huh? Quite a while, sir. Much too long a while. Young lady, please tell Mr. Larkey that Elliot Monroe could wait no longer. I'll see him at his home this evening. I have several studio calls to make this afternoon. Good day. Good day, Mr. Monroe. Ah, studio calls. Yes? Mr. Monroe couldn't wait, Mr. Larkey. He said he'd see you at your home tonight, sir. My tough luck. Anyone else, Mash? Only that New York call, sir. I'm still trying to get it. I'll put it right through the moment it comes in. Uh, <coughs> oh, <laughs> yes, sir. A Mr. Philip Marlowe, a private investigator. A private investigator? Uh, is it important? I think so, Mr. Larkey. It's as important as Jane Temple. Uh, Jane? What about Jane Temple? She's dead, Mr. Larkey. <laughs> A bullet through her heart. No. Uh, Madge. Yes, sir. Uh, bring Mr. Marlowe right in. Yes, sir. Right this way, Mr. Marlowe. Thank you. Well, Marlowe, why are you here? I mean, uh, how did you know I had anything to do with Jane Temple? I didn't. But since she was an actress once and you're about the biggest agent in Hollywood, I thought I'd start with you. Start what, Mr. Marlowe? Start finding out why she committed suicide, Mr. Lockie. Tell me, do you own a black convertible? Yes. Uh, one of those step-down Hudsons. Tire size, do you happen to know it? Yes, yes, uh, 750-15. Why? What's all that got to do with Jane Temple's suicide? Quite a bit. Might even change it to murder. Jane Temple murdered? By whom? Someone who'd profit, Mr. Larkey. Any idea who that could be? Not the slightest. Okay. Thanks for your trouble. And, uh, good afternoon. Uh, wait. Hold it, Mr. Marlowe. Huh? I, uh, I'd like to talk with you some more, but not here. You name the spot, Mr. Larkey. All right. My house tonight, 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock. I'll be there. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe, but first... Our armed forces are mighty busy these days. They're conducting the United Nations police action in Korea, 
They're patrolling the occupied countries. They're standing ready for national defense. And at the same time, they're doing important scientific research. With so many varied duties, the armed forces need more men. Men with brains and ability who can be trained as highly efficient specialists. Men who want to be the leaders of tomorrow. Inquire at your nearest recruiting office about the opportunities open to you in America's armed forces, the world's greatest power for peace. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe, and tonight's story, The Big Book. When I walked out of Jerome Lockie's sleep private office, I was satisfied that in spite of the efficient air condition of the atmosphere in there which they charged, with enough high voltage implications so that sooner or later he'd have to make another move. Outside it was dark. I drove back downtown and finally located Lieutenant Matthews at a lunch counter, wrapping up the short end of a quick blue plate special. My story didn't affect his appetite a bit. Have a piece of pie, Marlow. The cherry is great. Matthews, I've been trying to tell and you I've that I... have been listening, Phil, to all of it. All of it, from that crackpot shoemaker to a leather-bound scrapbook, right on up to a weird-looking Jerome Lockie's kiss. Now, what do you want me to do, get an ulcer? Matthews, maybe Jane Temple didn't kill herself. Maybe she was murdered. Go on. Now, look, there was an old clipping and some pictures in that scrapbook that identified our Jerome Lockie as one John Gordon, who did time a few years ago for embezzlement, Mm. which, if revealed, would ruin the great Jerome Lockie of today. Now, look, it looks like... Oh, that's... What's the matter? What's the matter? Look, Marlowe, I haven't been to bed for 24 hours. I'm dog-tired. I thought I finally got a break. A clean-cut case of obvious suicide. A nice old doll, disillusioned, broke, did herself in. Too bad, yeah, but just that simple. So what happens? You run into some jerk of a shoemaker with an imagination, and now it's all mixed up with ex-cons, blackmails, and murder. It's not my fault. I didn't do it, you know. I'm sorry, Phil. All right. A little fed up, I guess. Oh, nothing that a week or so of hearing wind in pine trees wouldn't cure so you went out to see Lockie, huh? Uh-huh. Where'd you leave it? Hanging in midair. Uh, Made a date with him for late at night at his house. You think he did it? Who knows? I saved my Sunday punch, his real name being Gordon, that is. Maybe when I spring that, it'll jar something loose, huh? Maybe. Oh, by the way, did you meet Mrs. Lockie? Not yet. Why? Nothing in particular. Good-looking blonde I saw once in the Beverly Hills station. Some beef about a collision. She impressed me as being a pretty tough fighter in the clinches, that's all. Just a thought. Yeah, finish your pie, Matthews. Yeah. You want to follow this through on your own, Phil? Yeah, if you don't mind. You see, I've gone this far, and, well, there was something about Jane Temple that, I don't know, it showed even down there in that dump. Yeah. That's what I mean, Phil. I got to get out under the pine trees for a spell, so keep me posted, huh? I drove out to Beverly Hills again and found the Jerome Lockie place. It was a close-to-the-ground model that at first glance looked like a cozy little cottage. Second glance, however, showed the other two wings, 15 or 20 ultra-modern rooms that rambled over two acres of gently rolling real estate. The door was answered by a close-cropped blonde and tailored black, who already today had the tapered, taut look of tomorrow. Yes? I'm Philip Marlowe. Is Mr. Lockie here? Oh. Oh, yes. Come in, Mr. Marlowe. I'm Vivian, Jerry's wife. Oh? Jerry's expecting you. You'll be right out. He asked me to look after you for a few minutes. Do you mind? On the contrary. I was in the middle of a whiskey and water, Johnny Walker. 
Like one? Thanks. Too bad about Jerry's old friend, Jane Temple, huh? Yes. Yes, it was a perfectly horrible thing. Jerry's very upset about it, you know. It uh, must be awful to fall so far. Yeah. The top is awful high. Did you know her? Only by reputation. What do you suppose happens to a person like that? I mean, you'd, you'd think they'd try to climb back out of the squalor. Yeah, you'd think so. Like uh, Jerry did. That's right. He deserves a lot of credit. Things must have been tough after he got out. Yes. Yes. Yes, they were. Why, when he got out of, of the production end of show business, he was flat broke. He lost a fortune that way. He's told me about it. How he had to start all over again from the bottom. So I understand. Uh, here's your drink, Mr. Martin. Oh, thanks, Vivian. Thanks a lot. You know, Mr. Marlowe, it really is a long, hard struggle to make it up from the bottom. Especially a second time. The third time, it... It might be impossible. Don't you think? Yeah. When you're up there, the fight's even rougher, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Sometimes the prison would... Oh, looks like you have another visitor. What? Coming up the walk outside. Oh. Oh, that's Elliot Monroe. He's always popping in here at odd times, usually to borrow something. <laughs> he may want anything from a clean shirt to a cup of vinegar. We never know. Well, this time he wants to see your husband. I ran into him at the office this afternoon and heard him say so. Oh, really? Yeah, so I'll make my business with Jerry as short and as to the point as possible. Well, that's... That's very considerate of you, Mr. Marlowe. Excuse me. I heard Mrs. Vivian Lockie receive the load of ham at the front door, and a second later I heard my name called from the hall behind me. It was Jerome All Smiles, doing his suave and determined best to bury the end of the world look he'd acquired in his office. But it peeked out around his eyes and at the twitching corner of his mouth. As he led me into the library and pointed me into a deep leather chair, I decided to let him lead off. I also decided to bait a trap and set it out. Now, how about a drink, Marlowe? I have one, thanks. Mrs. Lockie anticipated you. Anticipated? Oh, yes, of course. Well, let's see. Where did we leave off this afternoon? Oh, we talked about a lot of things like tire sizes, suicides. Mm, oh, yes, yes. Now let me get something straight, Mr. Marlowe. You seem to believe that there's a little more to poor Jane Temple's death than a simple suicide. Considerably more, Mr. Lockie. Yes. And you've come to me with this problem. Why? Because you may be able to fill in some blanks. Hmm? How? It's up to you. Let's say first that I think a prominent and wealthy man is connected. A man who's saddled with a messy past that he can't afford either to keep secret or have revealed. Now, just a minute, Marlowe. I don't know what you're driving at with this double talk, but it sounds to me as if you're accusing Jane Temple of blackmail, and I don't believe it. She'd have starved to death first. I'd like to agree, believe me. But unfortunately, I can still add. What do you mean? For instance, to what I said before, I had the name John Gordon. Go uh, <clears throat> who uh, is John Gordon? I'm not quite sure. But I do know this. Somehow the key to who he is ties into a basement shoe shop in the hundred block on West Main Street. Does that mean anything to you? No. Why should it? Marlowe, why exactly did you come here? Please tell me. I just did. Well, that's that. Chances are I'll see you again sometime. 
Good night, Mr. Larkin. Tomorrow, wait. Hmm? Uh, listen. In my business, bad publicity counts. And I've worked awfully hard. To I know. It. I went all through that with Mrs. Larkin. Don't worry about me. This time, I'm more than willing to let somebody else do the talking. Walked out on Larky for the second time, things still didn't add up right. Something was missing. In the hall, I passed Elliot Monroe hanging onto a glass of scotch like it was a streetcar strap. And at the door, Mrs. Larky ushered me out with a frigid, unsmiling nod. I drove slowly all the way to Main Street, and when I was parked and walking toward Nadella's shoe shop, I began to doubt that the trap I'd set was going to catch anything. Until a long black convertible turned the corner behind me. I ducked into a doorway and waited. It was Jerome Lockie's car, all right. He almost stopped in front of the shoe shop, but suddenly lurched ahead and disappeared around the corner, away from what turned out to be a cop pounding the beat. I was convinced he'd be back, so when the cop passed me, I ran around to the rear of the shoe shop and down the stairs to a window where I could keep out of sight and still see anything that went on inside. I just settled down for a wait when it came. Stand still, my fine fellow. Don't move or I'll kill you. Mr. Elliot Monroe. Huh. What do you know about that? Looks like the wrong sucker rose to the bait. Or is this just coincidence? It's no coincidence, my friend, believe me. While you were in talking to dear Jerry tonight, Vivian was called to the phone. That gave me a chance to listen outside the library door and overhear everything you said. That's why I am here. To protect my interests. No wonder things didn't add. You're the missing link, typecast at that. Keep those but... hands up. Sure. Sure, I couldn't see Jane Temple as a blackmailer. Now Jerome Lockie is a killer, but you're playing both parts. For you, that's a cinch. Aye, but our detective is clever now, isn't he? But just a little late, wouldn't you say? Yeah. No switches in a one-track mind. Yeah, it's my own fault. Have your fun, Monroe. But tell me one thing. How'd you worm your way into this setup? That was a well-kept secret. <laughs> Not to a man with an experienced eye for drama, my good fellow. It started very simply when I recognized Jane Temple on the street one afternoon and befriended her. Befriended her? Uh, yes. We reminisced about the good old days in the theater and finally went through her scrapbook together. But there was one clipping that she tried desperately to hide in the binding. Oh, clumsy old fool. So when she sent the book here to be repaired, it was you who broke in and found that clipping, huh? Yes, yes, and read it. And put it back before the stupid cobbler discovered me. But I had found the skeleton in the closet and knew that I could make it rattle long, loud, and lucratively. Sure. Jane Temple would do the dirty work, put the bite on Lockie. It would have been perfect, an ideal escape for both of us from the constant humiliation of poverty. There was nothing of woman left in her. All that remained of the great Jane Temple was dusty yesterday in a book bound in leather. Mr. Marlowe, are you afraid to die? No more than most people. Oh, oh, I'm glad you said that. I had to kill you anyway, but at least you understand. Um, uh, he who kills cuts off so many days of fearing death. Then is death a benefit. It's the last benefit you'll ever play. <laughs> no. 
crazy clown. You know all the answers now, don't you, Marlo? The whole story. Yes, Vivian. All except how you showed up here when you did. I, I had to. You, you see, I, I've always known about Jerry's past. He told me about it before we were married. I, I knew that was why you came to see him tonight. And when I saw Elliot there listening at the library door, I, I realized that he must have known too. When he left the house, I followed him. Got here in time to save my life. To be honest, Marlo, that was incidental. I, I got here in time to save my life. I hope. Hmm. Well, just the same. I'm going to return the favor when the police get here. You, you, you mean you... I mean there are a lot of things that belong in a dead woman's leather-bound book of memories. No place else. I'm going to do my best to help you and Jerry keep them there. Oh. Thanks, mister. Well, that's the way it worked out. One policeman named Matthews got the whole story, but only half of what he found out was entered in the police records. And only as much of that as was necessary ever got into the papers. Two days later, when Jane Temple's funeral was held, it didn't even make the back page. <laughs> After all, what's news about one Italian cobbler, one private detective, and one hard-boiled agent standing bareheaded before a fresh grave? Even though the cobbler had worked all night, binding a big book in the finest of Morocco leather. Even though the agent with blinking, moist eyes closed that book for the last time. And the private detective laid it in the coffin to be buried with her. Yeah. What's news about that? Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Jack Crucian, Bud Whittam, Jay Novello, Lynn Allen, John Daner, and Ted Von Elts. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Time now for Red Skelton. Tonight, Willie Lump Lump winds up in traffic court.
It's Moisturize, the new, all-new, Rolly 903 cigarette. Listen. That jet of fresh, pure moisture stands for the new, different, moisturized Rolly 903. New blend, new taste, new freshness. It's the new, all-new, moisturized Rolly 903. Pleasure to bring you Metro Golden Mayor's popular comedian and the star of our Raleigh cigarette program, Red Skelton. Thank you very much and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> hey, Mr. Raleigh walked in tonight, see, and he's got a towel over his arm, and I says, What's it for? He says, Everybody I meet says, How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Red, do you know what today is? Yeah, it's Tuesday, isn't it? Or did I get up for nothing? <laughs> Today's April Fool's Day. Yeah, today I feel legal, you know. <laughs> did anybody play a trick on you? Yeah, when I woke up this morning, I started, unra- started unwrapping a big package. Well, what was in it? Me. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen you around Reuben's Market lately. How come? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's because I haven't been down there. <laughs> There's brilliant new material. <laughs> It's jokes like that that's going to put me back at O'Connor and White Shoe Factory. <laughs> hey, we may stay on for the summer, you know. With material like this, we leave the audience cold, you know. <laughs> Say, we've been doing retakes on Merton of the movie. Well, what part of the picture are you working on now? The love scenes with Virginia O'Brien. Well, why didn't you do the love scenes right in the first place? I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Well, are you convincing as a lover? Yeah, Virginia told me that when it comes to making love, I could teach Gable a thing or two about jujitsu. <laughs> well, what does your director, Richard Thorpe, think about your acting? Well, I'm, I'm, I don't like to talk about things like that. <laughs> Besides, we got a lot of kids listening. <laughs> well, I know any picture that he directs will be a hit. Richard Thorpe never misses. You can say that again. I got two teeth missing to prove it. <laughs> We've been working nights, you know. Well, I guess it's pretty tough working these cold, rainy nights. Yeah, what you talk, what you talk. We never say rain out here. It's merely California shedding a few tears for the bad weather that Florida is having. You know, Mr. Mayor must think a lot of you, Red, with all this work they're doing on Merton of the Movies. Oh, yeah. You must have an awful lot of money tied up in it. Two million dollars, my boy. Including your salary? Uh, no, I forgot that. That makes it two million and ninety-eight cents. <laughs> I work pretty hard out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you know how hard I work? How hard? They bid on me three times at Santa Anita at the mayor auction. <laughs> Well, they previewed that picture once. What happened? Wasn't it funny? Funny? My next-door neighbor saw it, and he almost died. Really? Yep. Some popcorn stuck in her throat. <laughs> almost <stuck. laughs> Anita Ellis sings Sunday Kind of Love. I want a Sunday kind of love 
Look, my beautiful specimen of undeveloped seaweed. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you sitting in the backseat telling me how to drive all the time. (laughs) Bring this man back here tomorrow. You'll see me today. How do you feel? Oh, no, you don't. I'm wise to you, birds. A judge once asked me how you feel. I said, fine. He said, ten dollars. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. What are you charged with? Oh, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> What's your name? Wouldn't say. Ask me again, I'll tell you something. <laughs> Willie Lump Lump, what's yours? Willie. Hmm? Your Honor, he means no wrong. He, he's uh, just frightened. Oh, no, I ain't. You aren't scared? No. Willie, look at me. 
Now I'm scared. <laughs> We're the arresting officer. Step forward yeah. and state the charge. Yeah, tell him about yes, it. Yes, sir. He resisted arrest, was speeding down a one-way street with no lights on. Yep. You're charged with three violations. What do you have to say? Who did I see about opening a charge account? <laughs> Mr. Lumpnut, are you guilty or not guilty? Yes, I am. Yes, you am what? You listen to Amos and Andy a lot, don't you? <laughs> I'm either guilty or not guilty. Figure it out for yourself. I ain't no stool pigeon here. <laughs> Just pick up any line and start reading. I don't... Well, which are you? Guilty or not guilty? I think that's a rather personal question, if you ask. How fast was he driving, officer? Tell him, blabbermouth. <laughs> 76. That's the spirit. <laughs> Look, if I was speeding, so was you. Otherwise, you would have never caught me. Now, work your way out of that one. <laughs> Look, you forget your charges against me, and I'll do the same for you, and I'll be on my way. Really, should I call your lawyer, Frank Belcher? You will not. I talked to him this morning. He says, I'll go down there with you. I said, no, you won't. He said he was going to get me a suspended sentence. Well, is a suspended sentence bad? Yeah. Uh, do you know what happens when you get a suspended sentence? They hang you, don't they? <laughs> Boy, that's what I like, is a courtroom that will applaud. <laughs> oh, please, Your Honor. Well, really, Willie, Willie's a good man. Yes, I'm a he's, good. he's a close observer of all traffic laws. Oh, stop beating around the bush. Close observer. Why don't you come right out and tell a man I'm nearsighted and get it over with? <laughs> You're nearsighted and you drive without glasses, eh? Yep. Now, how far can you see? Pretty good. Uh, clear day, I can see the sun. <laughs> That's too fast for him. He didn't even get <laughs> Look, wise guy, in about two seconds, I'm going to wrap this gavel around your neck. Uh, now, how far can you see? About six feet. <laughs> then how do you know where you're going? Just follow the radiator tap. <laughs> what would you do if someone stepped off the curb stool? I'd knock him back on the sidewalk before he got hurt. <laughs> I tried to make him stop driving. Why, last week he went right through a stoplight. Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, no, I didn't. All right, you didn't. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> you see, he admits it. Oh, no, I don't. Look, I didn't go through a stoplight, Your Honor. <laughs> I stopped dead the minute I hit it. You mean you wrecked your car? Not exactly. I always drive around with a motor in my lap. <laughs> well... I find you $100 and sentence you to 90 days in jail. Well, uh, you're pretty liberal with other people's time, ain't you, old boy? Next case. Well, Willie, it's your own fault. Yeah, I know, but I had it coming to me. 
If I'd have been that judge, you know what I would have done? I'd have sentenced a thoughtless offender like me for a year. You know, I just happened to realize something. I could have been killed. Or I could have killed somebody. You know, driving carelessly and not obeying the laws that protect safety of the lives of other people and your own makes you the same as a criminal that carries a gun and goes out with the intent to kill. And it's the little laws that we break that contribute to the overthrow of our American way of life. And it comes down. David Forrester and his Raleigh Cigarette Orchestra play Karaoke.
wonderful, David. You even look like a tamale now, believe me. <laughs> Chapter two is entitled The Great Pie Mystery. <laughs> Well, there's nobody around. Here I is, all alone. <laughs> the stage is set for catastrophe. <laughs> I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to call up somebody on the telephone. I'm going to call on the telephone. Hello? Hello? Operator? Give me, uh, ought, 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 double ought, ought, nothing. <laughs> Why, that's your own number. Well, naturally, I don't want to talk to strangers, you know. <laughs> what number do you wish, sir? Sure. Oh, boy, she think I was a man, boy. <clears throat> Look, uh, babe, what you doing tonight, Cookie? Nothing. If your mother's going out, I could come by and see that you don't fall out of your cradle. Yeah. <laughs> Look, give me the FBI real quick, will you? Hello, this is the office of the FBI. Well, look, uh, I as a non-citizen, I want to tell you where, where you can lay your hands on a whole lot of crooks, a whole gang of criminals. Yes? Right? Where about? Alcatraz. But... <laughs> now back to me fleet of boats in the bathtub. I'm going to sail me boats in the bathtub. <laughs> Who left that bar of soap on the floor? <laughs> Junior! Uh-oh. The voice of doomsday. <laughs> Here I ask you, know. What are you up to? Up to me neck. I'm sitting in the bathtub. <laughs> I'm sailing me boat. Junior, have hmm? you seen my new shoes? You mean the submarine? Sub- <laughs> Junior! <laughs> Those things at the bottom of the tub look like my shoes. Well, give them a couple of minutes. They won't. <laughs> <laughs> Easter shoes are ruined. Oh. Get out of that water. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've got your clothes on. Well, naturally. We get dirty together, we just won't get clean together. <laughs> and besides, I gotta wear my clothes. You always sneaking in unexpected, the goodness. Well, what is this bottle of mercurochrome doing out of the medicine cap? I poured it in the tub. I'm sailing on the Red Sea today. <laughs> oh, I've never... Come here to me. No, if I don't... You'll I, get a whipping. And if I do, I get a whipping. Look, kiddo, you're going to have to entice me with a better bargain than that, will you? Get out of that tub. Now, I'm going to have to spank you. Now, look, Grandma, you spank me, I cry, and then you feel sorry for me, and then you give me a cookie and I eat it, but right now I have school. So let's just forget the whole thing. Here, hmm? get out of those wet clothes. Yes? What's this in your back pocket? The snake. Ooh, your grandfather's electric razor. Now, what were you doing with that? I'm not going to tell you what I've been doing with the razor. But that naked cat is the weirdest looking thing. (laughs) Here, put this suit on. No, I'm not going to wear that thing. Don't you like the suit? No, I don't. With that sissy suit, I always has a fight when I wear it. You always get in a fight no matter what you wear. So what's the difference? Lenny, with this suit, I got to fight the little girls, too. <laughs> a blue bow down the front with a big ribbon in the back. I can just see Dickie Olin, you know, and the juvenile jury gang just waiting to take a clink at me as I walk by. Junior, know? you're not going to let those ruffians bully you. you know, ruffians. Abraham Lincoln once wore a suit his grandmother made for him, really? and a group of toughies made fun of him and tried to muss his suit up. But young Abe took care of them. Look, that was long time ago, kiddo. Just face it, we is living in the bubblegum age, you know. <laughs> well, that's 
set up for this foolishness. Yes. You sit right here on this table. Oh, yeah. And I'll tie your shoelaces for you. Yeah, okay. Hey, Nemo, why are you making a hen knot? Oh, I guess I got carried away for a second. <laughs> there. Now, see if you can stay clean for about three minutes. Okay, kid, yo, watch me. I'm going to jump off with your cane. No, no, watch don't me. jump. There's a weak spot in the floor. <laughs> Nemo, open your cellar door. Are you all right? No, no, don't make a fuss. Oh, dear. No, you no, could no. have fallen in the hot furnace. No, no, oh. don't get one. I don't care. I wish I had, boy. I would just sit there and barbecue myself, you know. <laughs> I just sit there and bake myself with hot coals, you know. Spit on me to hear me sizzle, you know, I would. I mean, I would wither up and I would... Oh, no, no. <laughs> Wrong. I scared me, Dad. <laughs> bless his little heart. Yeah, bless his little heart. Now, don't cry. Okay. Grandma, I'll give you a nice piece of fresh pie. Okay. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. I don't think I want oh, to. Now, smell them. Mm, yes, it's more Good good. heavens. Someone has taken a big bite out of the middle of each pie. Now, who would do the thing like that? I think I know the answer to that. I think you do, too, so let's just skip it. Junior, hmm? look me in the eye. Now, if you're telling the truth, you'll be able to keep looking me in the eye. If not, you'll have to look down. Mm-hmm. Now, did you touch those pies? No, I did not. And I can see I need a shoe shine, too. <laughs> Now, now, <laughs> look, Grandma. Now, it must have been an inside job. Look, you better look for some fingerprints. Look for footprints. No, look there aren't foot- any footprints, what? but there are fingerprints. Well, there couldn't be. I wore my catcher's mitt. What did you say? <laughs> I mean, look, them pies with the middles, I look like catcher's mitts. Look. Well, if you didn't eat the pies, you're probably hungry for some pies. No, no. So I'll give you a big hunk. A big hunk? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe tomorrow. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Why is your face so green? Watch out, Tommy. Don't give me away, will you? <laughs> Look, I think I'm going to go outside and play. Here you are. It's very big, isn't it? What's wrong? Hmm? Why do you just stand there looking at it? You know, if whoever ate all that pie was to eat more on top of it, it would make them sick, wouldn't it? It would help. <laughs> and here's some milk. Milk, oh, don't no, take it away, take it away. It looks like bleached castor oil. <laughs> and I don't think I want it. You I think don't... it. Hmm? Milk makes strong tea. Well, if milk makes tea strong, why does Grandpa put his in water every night? Hmm? <laughs> yeah, but at what time did old Laura Plate Wobble stagger in last night? Right? You know them more for them teasy his? That Laura Plate Wobble is affecting his whole body. Well, you just stop stalling yeah. and eat the pie. Okay. Why a spider? Yum, yum. Junior, you've got your mouth full. Now swallow. I did, but this is far as it goes. <laughs> and stop eating with your mouth open. I gotta get air, don't I? <laughs> Junior, you're not eating that pie. Now eat it so I can get you another big piece. I. Mm. <laughs> another piece? Junior, mm. why don't you eat? I'm just not hungry, I guess. 
Why, Junior? Don't stand so close to me, Grandma. <laughs> hey, why are you looking at me like that? Junior, hmm? yes? eat all of that pie. I don't want to. You make me eat that pie, I'm going to tell you. You're going you. to tell what? I will tell everybody if you used to be tricky finger something to stop lifting. Ooh, that was no such thing. Oh, no. Hey, tricky finger, nobody's looking. Grab that vase over there. You grab it. I'm loaded. <laughs> <laughs> I do it again. I can put that old kiddo in the thing anything I want to do. <laughs> I'll see you later, Grandma. I know you're very hungry for pie. Junior. Hmm? Eating that pie makes you feel a little guilty, doesn't it? It does. Now, I want the truth, Junior. Did you dig into those pies? I worked hard to bake those pies. Hey, Grandma, why are you holding that pie like that, huh? Don't you know? You look like you're going to smack me in the kisser with it. <laughs> oh, but you wouldn't do the thing like that. You don't even kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep laughing, kiddo. <laughs> hey, Grandma, Grandma, now you're looking funny. What you thinking about, Grandma? What am I thinking he wants to know? Go on, Perla. Smack him in the face with it. He won't cry long. You look funny, Grandma. Then again, he might. Then again, I don't know why I'm standing here thinking about it. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. That man, I'm put me down. What's the matter with you, Grandma? What? What? Goodness, you, you had to bleed on me. You was about two inches ready to smack me right in the kitchen with that pie. And you had to suck. Goodness, isn't it awful the way the grown-ups pick up things we kids do? We hope you liked our program well enough to do this again next Tuesday night. So until next Tuesday then. This is Red Skelton saying goodbye now. Thanks for listening and thanks for buying Rolling. Good night. Remember, folks, the Greek war relief is worthy of your support. Brown and Williamson invite you to other good listening during the week. Listen to People Are Funny with Art Linkletter next Friday night and join us again with Red Skelton next Tuesday. Red Skelton is heard in this program through the courtesy of Metro Golden Mayor. Red Skelton is brought to you by the makers of Rolly Cigarettes. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's The Saint, followed by Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.